welcome back to another episode of Creating Madness. I'm your host, Ethan Carboni. John cannot be here today, but that's all right, because we have our biggest interview ever with Mr. College Football, Tony Barn. Tony, how are you doing today? Ethan, I'm doing well. It's a beautiful day here in Atlanta. It's starting to warm up a little bit in May, but uh, all is good. That's good to hear. Before we get started, do you want to shout out your socials, shout out anything? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Mr. CFB, Mr. College Football. Uh, I, I'll never forget getting on Twitter for the same first time many, many years ago. And I was somebody told me about it and I had no idea what it was. And so it's I, I, I have sort of grown up with Twitter these days. And as always, follow us at ATR Madness. We just gave Tony a follow. You guys should as well. And with that, let's hop right in. And we're going to IL pay to play and the transfer portal. You, you grew up and until about the past two years, transfer portal, no, no transfer portal like it is now at least. And no NIL. Do you think these new changes are good for the sport or, or mix in between? Well, Ethan, I would say to be determined. Uh, we, we don't know yet because we have no idea. The transfer portal, let's let's start with that. I, I believe the transfer portal is going to be adjusted. Right now it's open 365 days a year. The coaches, I know because I've spoken to some of them, want to change that. They want to create probably two windows of opportunity to join the transfer portal. Uh, one after spring practice, like April 15th to May, to May 1st. And then another one at the end of the regular season until Nash to the uh, signing day in mid-December. That's what they'd like to do. And I think that's probably a wise course of action to take because the coaches have to manage their rosters. They have to know who's playing and who's not playing. And by keeping it, by having two specific windows, like, like you have certain windows that you can't recruit, I think that would be a good thing and make it make it a bit more manageable. As far as NIL is concerned, I, I would have to say if anybody tells you they know what's going to happen, they're lying to you. Because right now uh, in NIL, there, there are no rules. And if there were rules, there's nobody to enforce those rules because the NCAA has pretty much given up on this stuff. Uh, there'll be a report from the NCAA later on, probably this summer, about what the NIL has done. I just don't see any solutions right now of how to get a handle on this. So there's one universal set of rules and that ultimately that's got to be done. But how do you do that, Ethan, without violating antitrust law? And that that's a whole, we could do five shows on that. So I feel better about the transfer portal. I think that it's been good for players on, on balance. Uh, the NIL right now, a lot of people are going to make a lot of money and we'll see how that, pans out because nobody knows where this is going right and we're seeing reports here mr college football we're gonna bounce back and forth between college basketball and college football special episode today jordan addison the bolitnikoff winner from last year he is rumored to have a seven-figure deal for him to transfer a seven-figure nil deal set up for only a few transfers yeah, uh, yeah, I, and I've heard that, and, I, and there's a lot of people that are uh, quite upset by that. But here's the deal. 
you can't really make rules right now against it. Uh, and again, if you did do those rules, uh, who would enforce them? So, the, yeah, that, and you're going to see more of this. When you're talking about a special player like this young man here, uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunities. And I just don't know. I don't know that you can do anything about it, to be honest. Potentially, do you think there could be, I don't want to say a rule, but I'm not sure exactly how to phrase it. If a player were to transfer, they cannot have an NIL deal done within the next year. Do you think that would be a possible option at all or no? It's hard for me to see because what, what, on what basis would you do that? Uh, because if the basis, the courts, the courts told us earlier this year, Ethan, uh, or last year, when they slam dunked the NCAA 9-0, they were basically telling us, hey, we know that these situations make college football and basketball more difficult for the schools. We understand that. But quite honestly, we don't care. What we do care about is that the, the rights of these young citizens are protected to the fullest extent of the law, and they shouldn't have to give up any of their rights, the rights that the coaches have. They shouldn't have to give up any of their rights for the privilege of playing college sports. And so you, you can make all these rules you want. I'm just not sure they're going to stand up under a court of law. You said the exact same thing that every single person we've had on the show says, has said for NIL. So it looks like really, like you said, nobody truly knows. Nobody. And ultimately, ultimately, the answer may be it'll be the, 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 the worst of two evils or the better of two evils. You know, one thing people say, well, why couldn't you just do a salary cap? Well, you know what? You can't do a salary cap in anything unless it's bargained for in collective bargaining. The reason there's an NFL salary cap right now is that the NFL Players Association sat down with the owners and they negotiated a deal where they're for the good of the game that there would be a salary cap. Uh, you can't just artificially impose one because the, the only way you can impose a salary cap is if it came from collective bargaining. And so in order to have collective bargaining, you might have to make the players employees of the university and then negotiate what the uh, salaries are going to be and what the salary cap is going to be. It's, the bottom line, Ethan, is that the NCAA kicked this can down the road for decades and years and years and years and thought they could win in a court of law, and of course they didn't. Now it's gotten so far down the road, I am not sure how you fix it uh, without doing something equally as radical. It's going to be a very fun situation to follow over the next four years while I'm in college. But moving on to a lot more positive note, while you've been on the job, you've been witness hundreds if not thousands of incredible moments. What would you say is probably the most memorable or favorite moment that you've witnessed while you were on the job? Well, it's interesting you should ask this. I did a function last night uh, to a group, and they asked the exact same question. And they're two, they're two different things for me. Uh, again, this is my 47th year of doing this. Uh, and the best game, people say, what's the best game you ever saw? Well, the best game I ever saw was Texas-USC in the Rose Bowl for the national championship. That was absolutely incredible. Uh, the way that game came down, the way Vince, you know, USC went forward on fourth and two and didn't make it. 
and that gave Texas a chance to win the football game. And with Vince Young, they did best best football game uh, I've ever seen. But my most favorite memory happened during this national championship run by Georgia. I'm a, I'm a Georgia grad, proud Georgia graduate. Uh, I've kept I've kept the, uh, but I don't wear it on my sleeve because I try to be a professional. But I have three fraternity brothers. And every year we go to the Georgia-Florida game. That's in Jacksonville, Florida, by the way, every year. And it's a, it's a big event. And we spend four or, five, four or five days there and have a great time. And, and uh, I work the game, and they, they tailgate and go watch the game themselves. I told my boy, I called on my boys. I said, boys, if Georgia gets to the national championship game in Indianapolis, uh, we're all going, and I'm going to sit in the stands with you. Uh, instead of going to the press box and watching the game there. And so that's exactly what happened. And you know what the outcome of the game was. And we've got great photos. I ended up, I, instead of writing a column on the game itself, I wrote a column on my experience with my fraternity brothers. Uh, we've got photos that were taken just minutes after the game. And it was, it's my, it's, it's one of the, it is the greatest football memory that I now have. And it just, it just happened last January. Well, you answered two of my questions because my next question was going to be after going to Georgia, what was it like seeing them win their first in 41 years? What's interesting is I was working in Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, when they won the last last national championship in 1980 and uh, never thought you'd have to wait 41 years to get the next one. But uh, it, it was it was an emotional scene. Some of my fraternity brothers – we're literally in tears. They said 41 years is a long time to wait. I called my wife and my daughter. My daughter's a Georgia grad. She's got a couple of couple of degrees from Georgia, and they were crying. And uh, so it was just it was a special, uh, special, special night. And what made it special was I got to share it with my boys, and that was uh, that was really cool. That probably sounds like one of the best memories anyone could have for a sporting event. Well, I, I had, we had gone to the Rose Bowl four years before Georgia, remember, Georgia played Oklahoma in the national semifinals, which were in the Rose Bowl that year. And Georgia beat Oklahoma in a great game uh, in overtime. And, um, you know, that we, we thought that and, and just the whole deal of going to Pasadena and tailgating and just incredible venue and all that. We thought that nothing could ever beat that Rose Bowl game, but the, national championship in Indianapolis certainly did. Wow. Georgia fans are blessed. Well, they are blessed. Listen, Georgia's been, Georgia's had a wonderful football program. Kirby Smart has done an incredible job before that. Uh, you had Jim Donnan, you had Ray Goff. Uh, Mark Rick was there for 15 years and averaged 10 wins a year for 15 years. And before all those coaches I just named, Vince Dooley was the head football coach at Georgia for 25 years and won six SEC championships and a national championship. So Georgia, Georgia, the Georgia fans have been blessed uh, with a very, very consistent football with a lot of great tradition. Yeah. I'm an Illinois fan. I don't get that. <laughs> well, you got, you know, you had Dick Butkus, you know, he was pretty good. So. Yeah, he was definitely very good. I think my, my, man, listen, my, man, my man Ron Zook took you to the Rose Bowl that year, so that was fun. I think the one time Illinois has been to the Rose Bowl in my life, it was 2007. Yep. 
So I was about four years old at the time, or three years old. <laughs> so. Yeah, Ron Zook, who's a f- good friend of mine, uh, who was the uh, was the coach at Florida before he went to uh, Illinois. He was the he was the coach of that team. I think got him Juice Williams was your quarterback, or I, I may have that wrong. Yeah, so. you're right. I think. <sighs> good memories. Don't get many of those for being an <laughs> Illinois sports fan. But moving into ball. You covered 23 Final Fours. How much would you say the sport of basketball, college basketball has changed since you've to college football being your main priority? Well, the game the game itself is, is an absolute great game. Obviously, the biggest change – well, I'll give you an example. Um, I, watched, I watched the game between North Carolina and Virginia at Chapel Hill in 1982. And on the on the North Carolina team, that, that team would go on to win the national championship, by the way. You had a guy named James Worthy was pretty good. You had a guy named Sam Perkins was pretty good. You had a freshman named Michael Jordan, who we all thought had a chance to be pretty good. That was on North Carolina's team. All right. Virginia's team had a had a a senior by the name of Ralph Sampson, who stayed there for four years, and he was surrounded by a bunch of future pros. And the fact that I was watching all those pros were on that were playing in that game, that Ralph Sampson was a senior. He could have gone out, you know, under under the different rules. And so that's the biggest change is you don't have senior teams like you used to. Like in 85, when you had three big East teams in the final four, and Patrick Ewing and, and Chris Mullen and uh, all those all those guys, they would play until their senior year. And, and to me, that's the biggest change. But I, I will tell you this, the game delivers. The game is still a great game. And even with the one and done, people get upset by that. The quality of the game is as good, to me, is as good as it's ever been. I find that very interesting because you'll hear a lot of people say, ever since one and done started, college basketball started going downhill. Well, so it's – but 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 look at the ratings. Is it is it as good as back in the old days when James Worthy was a junior and Ralph Sampson was a senior? No, I mean the game is obviously the game back then obviously had to be played at a higher level. But it's I mean the tournament is so much fun now. Regular, I had this conversation last night with this group. Regular season college basketball is not what it used to be. I think I think everybody has to admit that. But the fact of the matter is the excitement about the tournament is still still the same. Is the game still played at the same level? But it's it's in it's entertaining as heck. For sure. And well moving into your career a bit, what was it like? Is you switched from like a small newspaper to the Atlanta Journal Constitution. How is that adjustment from going from small newspaper to one of the bigger ones in Georgia? Well, I, I grew up about an hour from Atlanta. And when I made when I went to college and made up my mind that I was going to be a sports writer, that was always the goal, was to get to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It took me eight years to get there. I got there in 1984. And obviously, when you're working for an organization like the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, there's a lot more people involved. There's a lot... Uh, lot going on there and uh it was 
I was just so, hey, listen, I was just so excited to be there because at the age of 30, I, I had basically reached my, or 29, I'd reached my goal, uh, which is kind of neat. But it, you, ha you have great resources. We had one of the best in the 80s. We had one of the best sports staff of any newspapers in America. And I got to cover, I got to cover college football for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that really believed in college football. And it was just, uh, it was an incredible move. Stayed there, stayed there 25 years uh, until the economy tanked in 08. And then had the opportunity. I'd been doing a lot of radio and television anyway. I had worked for College Game Day at ESPN. I uh, had done some work for CBS. And uh, I left the newspaper business in 08 when the economy tanked and they were given buyouts and been, you know, I've, I've, I've been involved in websites and things of that nature, but I've basically made my living through radio and television ever since uh, leaving the AJC in 08. How did it transfer from writing to being on air radio TV? Well, there's, there's a learning curve. There's no question about that, but the people, the first folks I worked for, I worked uh, for ESPN uh they came to me i did some stuff for them on thursday night football and then they came to me and said they wanted a this is before this is as college game day was first getting cranked up in the 90s they wanted a roving reporter to be on the show every week and they didn't have anybody like that and so i went to bristol connecticut and applied for the job did a bunch of interviews and got it so i was on college starting in 97 i was on college game day every week i would do it from Whatever new, whatever game I was covering for the newspaper, they would send a they would send a camera crew uh, to follow me, and I would do it from the uh, do it from the stadium. And what I had what, the learning curve for television is pretty steep, but I had a lot of people, uh, Chris Fowler, Kirk Herbstreet, who was and Coach Corso was still there, and all of them uh, helped me learn the television business. I learned a lot from Chris Fowler, who then he was. You know, this is early in his career, but he taught me a lot about, you know, you've got to, in television, you've got to be very brief. You cannot use when somebody asks you a question, 20 to 30 seconds is the most you should talk. And that's a and that's a long time. But they taught me they, they took me under their wing. They taught me the television business. And then by the time I left there and went to uh, CBS, I had a pretty good handle on what I was doing. That's good advice. The 20 to 30 seconds for a question. That's, you know, Ethan, that's the toughest thing for particularly coaches to learn when they, when they switch over to television, because coaches, they want you to know everything that they know. All right. <laughs> and, but that's not, I learned early in my career as a newspaper, man, don't, don't give the reader everything you got. Don't empty out your notebook, figure out what's most important for them to know and give them that uh, because if you drone on and on and on, they're going to tune you out. And uh, yeah, I, I've talked to a lot of coaches who've made the transition and keeping the answers brief and punchy is the biggest lesson all of us have to learn when we're trying to get used to television. Hmm. That's interesting. I don't think I've ever heard the 20 to 30 second rule at all before. Yep. Well, as you know, watching a lot, a lot of people don't follow that rule, <laughs> but I, I tried to do it because it made more sense. 
Well, it also doesn't help now that you'll have Stephen A. Smith on air and he'll go on a seven-minute rant and, and completely opposite where he's uh, – Stephen A. Smith uh, interned with us at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution when he was a very, very young man. It's been, it's been kind of fun watching his uh, career grow. And he's he's got his own way of doing things, and I I respect him for it. He's definitely the most one of the most entertaining names in sports yeah. media for sure. And final couple of questions: uh, Do you have a favorite interview story or like interaction with a player or coach? Um, I was very close and still remain close with Vince Dooley because you got to understand me growing up when he became head coach at Georgia in 64, 1964, uh, I watched his I watched his entire career from the time he got to Georgia till 25 years later. I've I've done um, I've done a, I did his autobiography uh, back in 2005, I guess it was. Sitting down with that was a great uh, great joy. Uh, one of the other things is I did. Georgia had a um, a legendary radio broadcaster by the name of Larry Munson who just absolutely had a knack for what he was doing. And his, his calls are, uh, uh, people, people still can do these calls that are just incredible. Iconic is the word I was looking for. Uh, and I did a uh, chance to do Larry Munson's biography and, and sit with him three times a week for about six months and to do that book. That was a, that was a great joy. I'm like I've heard the name Larry before being into broadcasting and just hearing some of his work for like a couple of weeks ago I think it actually like we were going over best broadcasting calls for radio because for baseball we have to do radio for my high school we we were looking over some of his calls for football just because the amount of energy and passion he showed well and people and I, I growing up, I knew people who would watch the games on television, but turn down the sound so they could listen to him. Larry was as good as there's ever been about how to how to paint a picture. And that's what you do in radio. You know this. That's what you do in radio because they're not they're not watching the game. You've got to paint a picture. You got to take them there. And Larry just had this had this incredible sense of timing. Well, I'll give you an example. One of the calls you probably listened to was was a call where Georgia was down by a point late in the game against Florida. They were ranked uh, number two. If they won, they would move to number one and still be in the hunt for the national championship. But Florida scored late, and Georgia was behind 21 to 20, and Georgia got the ball back with about a minute and a half on their own seven-yard line. Uh, Florida had punted the ball out of bounds. On third down, he throws a pass over the middle to a wide receiver by the name of Lindsey Scott. Uh, he gets the first down, but all of a sudden, the Florida defensive back slips, and Lindsey takes off running down the sideline. And he's and Larry is screaming, and finally, he just he's counting down the yards, and finally, he just can't help himself, and he goes, "Run, Lindsey!" And he, he counts off, you know, ten five touchdown. And what he did is something that I will never forget. After he calls. After he called, he didn't even say touchdown. He just said, Lindsey Scott, Lindsey Scott, Lindsey Scott. That was your way of knowing that he had scored a touchdown. And what he did, then he said nothing. For about 25 seconds, he let the crowd 
just come in over the radio and didn't say a word. And so when we were when we were doing the book, I said, why did you do that? Because what he had to do, his color guy was getting ready to talk and Larry put his hand on the color guy saying, shut up, don't say anything. And they didn't say anything for like 25 seconds. And so when I did, I did the interview with Larry for the book, I said, why did you do that? He said, it's an, it's an old radio trick that I learned from listening to Vin Scully, the great Dodgers broadcaster for my money. One of the greatest baseball broadcaster that's ever lived. Uh, he said, he said, let the moment, what Vin Scully would say was let the moment breathe. Don't talk over the moment. Let it breathe. Let the fans who are listening to you hear the crowd noise, and that tells the story. And uh, finally, after they waited for a while, the the color guy, Phil Schaefer, says, well, Larry, if you wanted a miracle, we just got one. And that's, that is the call that lives, uh, the iconic call that lives forever in the hearts and minds of the Georgia people. And when they won the national championship in Indianapolis, there were a lot of people said, man, I wish Larry was here. Would he enjoy this? That's an incredible story. Yeah. Well, it, it is, it is the, it is the single biggest play in the history of university of Georgia football. Now the Kylie Ringo's return for a touchdown, uh, interception at the end of the Alabama game in Indianapolis that will probably live right up there. But uh, until that, uh, the Lindsey Scott play of 1980 is the play that all Georgia fans know and love. For sure. And moving on to the final question, how did you get the name Mr. College Football? How did you get the name? <laughs> I can't take any credit for that whatsoever. Uh, back when the Back in the 80s, I guess it was the 80s, maybe early 90s, when AJC started their own website, Everybody has one now. They started their own website. And uh, the the guy who was running the website came to me. I was the I was the college football writer. They says, Hey, we're gonna we're gonna start a blog. I said, Hey, that's great. What's a blog? And he explained to, he explained to me what it was, how you would write something that would basically people could make comments at the end of it. So basically you'd write something get people arguing amongst themselves. And I said, well, shoot, I can do that. So the guy said, but we're going to give it a name. We're going to call it Mr. College Football. And I said, his name was Scott. I said, Scott, that, that really sounds cheesy to me. He said, yeah, but cheesy works on the internet. So we started it, got stuck with it. And when I left the journal constitution, I took it with me and I've I've still got it and I ain't giving it back, but I, I don't deserve any credit for it. Somebody else came up with the idea. I just, uh, uh, my, my daughter, who's an attorney said, dad, that's your name. You can keep it. So I said, okay. That's probably my favorite nickname story. Actually. Yeah. I just, you just got I, it from someone working with you and you just took it from them. Yeah. They, they, they gave, they gave it to me and said, I'm when I left, said, I'm not giving it back. So. All right. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show. One more time, you want to shout out your Twitter? Sure. Just follow me at, at, at Mr. CFB, at Mr. CFB. And our, our website is under the SI.com umbrella. 
Uh, it's called TMG College Sports. So it's si.com slash TMG slash sports. And we will be tagging Tony on our Twitter on at ATR Madness. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show. And with that, we will see you later. All right, Ethan, I, I really enjoyed it. Take care.